2: Hey folks! Uh, before we get to your podcast episode today, wanted to just make sure that you knew that we are having our first ever national gathering, which uh, kind of sounds official, but it's. Um, we were told by a friend that we should just call it our bonfire gathering because that's, that's what it is. That's what it is. It's uh, we we want to have a lot of gatherings around bonfires. It's going to be pretty informal, um, but uh, we we do want to just get together with those of you who have um, been in the orbit of gravity leadership um, to. Have some conversations to do some collaboration to talk about what's happening on the ground and learn from each other. Uh, we got a great email from our Fred, uh, from our friend, Fred Ligon, from our Fred <laughs> He's our friend. Ligon friend. Um, no. Uh, his Get your own friend. This is ours. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I wanted to read this email. Fred's not going to be there. So sorry to disappoint you. Um, but he sent us a, a, an email that I think encapsulates why we're doing this. And it was deeply encouraging to me. I just wanted to read this to you. Uh, Fred says, "I applaud you guys for making space for normal boots-on-the-ground pastors. So many of us are sharing in some beautiful things with our communities and witnessing the Spirit's work in transformative ways in our cities. We don't often make the time to blog or write books. Some of us struggle within ourselves as to whether we should tweet, post, etc., about what we are witnessing God do because of the attention it brings or uh, the attention we deeply seek. Therefore, no one really knows. It's nice that there's a gathering aimed at bringing us obscure folks together to talk, process, and bear witness to how God's kingdom is breaking in among us. Fred, we really wish you could be there. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I know that you really wish you could join us. But um, that, that to me felt like, man, that encapsulates exactly... We got to have Fred write the next version of this copy, well, right? Yeah. <laughs> but most... That encapsulates exactly what we want to do.
1: Yeah. He's our Fred, so we can do that. <laughs> uh, but I think most gatherings, you right. come... To hear the learning from the people who get paid, and you know they have their mobile home, they have their like their trailer with a they figured
2: a, something out, a food tray, yeah,
1: right. They the <laughs> experts, the experts yeah. with the food tray and the <laughs> mineral water, they're the ones who tell us all the wonderful things we need to know and go back and apply. Yeah, this is different in the sense that we're convening a conversation because we truly believe the learning is in the room. Mm-hmm. It's not on the platform; it's in the room, and so the we will have short sort of conversation framers pithy sort of uh, starters of conversations mm-hmm. but then we want we really do want to listen and discern together and hear and be together and laugh mm-hmm. and we won't tickle you but we're gonna laugh yep right yep. we're gonna have a good time we won't
2: force you to laugh but no no we no course of really hope laughing. you do <laughs> <laughs> right.
1: so anyway join us October 26th, 27th
2: yep gravityleadership.com gathering is where all the information is it'll be in the show notes hope you can join us.
1: The Gravity Leadership Podcast is curated conversations on what it looks like to practically orient our lives and our leadership in the love of Christ, the gravity that holds everything together.
2: Friends, welcome back to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. And uh, we are glad to be here with you today. I'm here with my friend and ministry Partner.
1: Mate. Ministry mate.
2: <laughs> Ministry mate. Uh, Matt Tebby. Hi. It really and
1: is, like, a co-pastoring really is kind of like a... When you there's decide a lot to, of
2: parallels to you know, marriage, yeah. partnership.
1: Yeah. You know, on the org chart, we were sort of parallel with each other. Right. And that confuses a lot of people. It does. Who makes the final decision, they ask? Mm-hmm. Well, I say that understands power incorrectly. Yes, that's right? not how we think about it. Which is one of the reasons why we're having our friend Brad. Yes, Brad Jerzak
2: is with us uh, all the way from uh, Canada.
1: Um, Albertson?
2: Yeah, where are you from, Brad? Abbotsford.
1: Abbotsford.
3: Abbotsford. Thanks that's for right. having me, by the way. This is going to be a treat for me, and I'm really glad yes. that you invited me.
2: Yeah, we're really glad to have you. Um, we wanted to chat uh, today. You can give 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 a little introduction, a little story, uh, if readers are, uh, sorry, listeners are not um, familiar with you um, you wrote a book uh, that we want to talk a little bit about today called a more Christlike God," uh, and want to yeah. talk a little bit about um, your ministry experiences that led you into kind of fully embracing this theological shift from God as pure will into God as infinite love, as it says in the book um, but we want to talk about how that was rooted not in your um, you know, study of the scriptures in an ivory tower somewhere, but in your kind of everyday lived experience. But um, before we get to that, just give give our listeners a little uh, picture of who you are, kind of what, what do you get up to in a typical day, and, and what's your life all about?
3: Yeah, uh, currently, I have a couple things going in terms of vocation. I'm the editor-in-chief of a magazine called Christianity Without the Religion, CWR Magazine, oh, I like and that. um, that's available online free at PTM.org and the story behind that is that many years ago you had a cult called the World Chi- Worldwide Church of God cult with the Plain Truth magazine Yeah, huh. their founder Herbert W. Armstrong died in the mid 80s the, the editor of the Plain Truth at the time began to have his eyes opened and by the 90s he had gone to resign because he realized they were false teachers but the president said, uh, I think you're right. And so they began a process by which they actually shifted the whole group to Nicene Christianity. Um, really? and um, fascinating. Uh, you know, the, the, uh, the anti-cult groups, like, let's say, um, the Bible Answer Man and so on, they, they had gone after them. Well, they actually helped them through this transition. Wow. Anyway, by uh, 2000, the cult, the Worldwide Church of God, had become a Christian evangelical denomination called <laughs> uh, Grace, Communi- uh, Grace Communion International, and then and the magazine went its separate way and started a started a ministry called Plain Truth Ministries, and then changed the name of the magazine uh-huh. to Christianity Without the Religion, oh. and then eventually they found me and I was a consultant and a writer, and now I'm the editor in chief. So it's <laughs> this bizarre thing about a group that I studied in cult. Class in 1982, and now I'm the editor in chief of this.
1: So, Brad, you can just mag- tell people you're that's an crazy. ex-cult leader.
3: <laughs> I, I I wasn't with them at the time, but I'm uh, I'm working with an ex-cult. That's yeah, for yeah, sure. Yeah, that's, that's crazy. Quite amazing.
2: That is amazing. And
3: then I still have a toe in the academic world. I I am entering the role as uh, as the associate dean of the Master of Ministries program at Saint Stephen's University in Canada, hmm. and it's. Um, can find that at ssu.ca and i teach new testament there i teach some theology teach some spirituality teach early church fathers and so on so that's kind of my vocational stuff the editing and the teaching i do a ton of itinerant stuff around a more christ-like god that, mm-hmm. that book i really i'm on a perpetual book tour <laughs> promoting the, the gospel i think i'm trying to evangelize <laughs> the western mind really um, mm. And then ministry side, I'm, I'm very involved in 12-step recovery, and I'm also the monastery preacher at All Saints of North America Orthodox Monastery in Deuteronomy, B.C. Um, so there's some monks up there who've mentored me in Eastern Orthodoxy, and I'm one of their preachers now. And hmm. uh, so on a Sunday, I, you may see me in a cassock
2: chanting and so on.
3: Wow. So I've got kind of an eclectic life, really.
2: Yeah, sounds like a lot, a lot of different things going on. Um, mm-hmm.
1: you weren't born Eastern Orthodox though. No, no. That's um, part of the, the, part of the quick journey. version of
3: that, everything's, everything has to have a quick version cause I'm so old now. <laughs> quick version is I grew up conservative Baptist for 20 years where I learned to love prayer, evangelism and the Bible. Then I got married and went to seminary. And when I was finished that, um, my wife's church, which was Mennonite invited me on and that's where I became a ordained Mennonite pastor, I did uh, youth, young adults and outreach stuff for 10 years with them. Then we planted a church that I would call um, small C, charismatic, very, it was kind of a vineyard feel. We weren't in the vineyard, but but a vineyard feel, uh, although our real emphasis was on people with disabilities, people with addictions, children and the poor. So sort of the least of these across the board, that was our focus. So I led that for 10 years. My wife led it for five, while she was leading it, I went off and got my PhD in theology. Hmm. And by the time I graduated, I, um, I I was starting to work with the magazine and with a school in England that I've just finished up at, Westminster Theological Center. I was there for six years, hmm. and that was okay. magnificent. So hmm. that's, uh, so. oh, and then that journey led me finally into the Eastern Orthodox Church. Um, hmm. For some of the reasons you see in the book, it's, okay. it's like my classic ex- assumptions about the meaning of the cross, the content of the gospel, I, I felt like, now I need to go deeper. And so it felt like migrating to the, the trunk of the tree. Uh, you know, <laughs> Christianity is a many-branched a many branched wonder. Yes. <laughs> but, um, you know, the ancient historic faith, the the, the four, third and fourth century fathers, they really appealed to me. And I found some Gandalf-like monks who, who have taught <laughs> me on that for now 15 years.
1: Oh, wow, so,
2: wow. So your connection with those monks is kind of as uh, a big part of that story it sounds like they they
3: yeah a huge part of that story okay and all of this that you're exactly right in the intro you talked about uh, like does our does our practice emerge from our theology mm. or vice versa and my my uh, observation is that when you start with a with an ideology or a mm. prescriptive theology and then you go out to apply it Hmm. Um that can become very ugly and toxic and and abusive but historically the very best theology always emerged from an observation and analysis of what God was doing what the holy spirit was doing in a worshiping church and then you would and then you would respond to that and say oh we see what god is doing here but that's that is the new testament yes, that's right. how the new testament was formed the whole yes. thing it was not written in a in the corner of a seminary office
1: somewhere, right. it was like,
3: right. "How do we respond to Jesus yeah. as we watch Him? How do we respond in our churches mm-hmm. as we live that
1: stuff?" So you, you like I uh, and Ben, kind of came up into sort of this um, Western Enlightenment Christianity that put a premium on the objective truth. The thing exists outside of you. You, you know, you don't. You don't sort of get to decide what it is. You consent or just submit to what it is. But what you're describing is the way that theology has always been done in the church has been this participative, experiential, uh, very subjective engagement. Like, how do you—I know that's part of your story and part of your journey into— Worshipping a more Christ-like God, but I think that sells. Mm-hmm. That that sets off like siren alarms for a lot of people, Brad. Yeah. Like if you if you decide to do theology on the ground and it becomes more subjective and experiential, then all the controls, all the, you know, all the ways that we put borders around doctrine, like the, you just throw those to the wind. And I know you don't believe that, but how do how do you maybe in your story how do you navigate that and how do you help people come to Come to understand that better.
3: That's really that's really good. So first of all, I would want to challenge, along with you, I think. Yeah. Um. Even the language of objective, subjective. Of course, I believe there's a truth that's beyond us. But there's, and I want to go more ancient then, because what you're critiquing, yes. and I would as well, is this Enlightenment idea that there's this there's this objective truth that I can that I can know objectively, as if I have no filters, no biases, no culture, no family history, no background wounds. Like, <laughs> it, 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 um, There's a kind of postmodernism, and Stan Fish is a good example of this, where he'd say, of course there's objective truth, it's just that when you go to know it, you're involved, your ears are involved, your eyes are involved, your life. So, the question is, can you know objective truth objectively? No, that's silliness. So... I want to use some different words. I would say that no, we don't want to just make stuff up. Right. Um, I believe that 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 there that there's a God who lives and moves independently of 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 my understanding, but our entire lives are to be an existential encounter with this God. So instead mm-hmm. of subjective, I'm using um I'm I'm using the, this idea that that if there is a God, He can only be known existentially yeah. and yes. experientially. In fact, what do we think the Bible is? It's not Mork from Mork that came out of heaven in an egg <laughs> one day. It's the history of people's subjective experiences, yes. <laughs> oh, existential experiences, their yeah. encounters with God, and that the Bible. The the Bible records these in a way that then we emulate.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: So we're not reading it as as it's not just text on a paper that you're meant to you know consume. Uh, um, apart from an interpretive bias, we just all have them. I think what I'm doing is saying I know I have one. I just I have a bad feeling. Enlightenment evangelicals don't know they yes. They are subjective. They're pretending right. they're not. That's a delusion.
2: Yes. That's what makes it especially dangerous. <laughs> that kind of subjectivity makes it especially dangerous when you don't think that you think you're just seeing the thing and you don't realize, oh, I've got some glasses on. Right. Yeah.
3: And I think there are there, some glasses actually distort and other glasses clarify, but right. you don't get away from having glasses. Yeah. You know, that's we all
2: need them. Not, we, not, not reality. Yeah.
1: Right? So I, I just get from talking to you before and even now as you shared that brief- uh, part of your story that this this ten to fifteen years with this community made up of the least of these did mm. did a number on your theology um, is that true
3: yeah, and even in even with the mennonites um when I was with the Mennonites we started we started um getting heavily into inner healing work mm-hmm. and, and this is where rubbing shoulders with vineyard folks who had some familiarity with that was helpful too but so basically um, I became more charismatic and contemplative in that I was open to experiences of direct encounter and my primary doorway into that was watching how Jesus treated sexually broken people especially like victims of, of sexual assault that's a big thing hmm. and so we would do healing of memories work where we would see how he treated these people who were really really broken and it was always like Isaiah 42 verse 2 it's a, a smoldering wick, he will not, not snuff out. A bruise bruised reed, re, he will not break. It was this supernatural tenderness. Then when we wanted to see even more healing, we thought it'd be better to work with perpetrators. So you prevent 30 rapes. Hmm. And and no one was having success with this, really. And And we're looking at it and saying... Well, why don't we pray with them the same way? And then we did, and we saw it was the same God and the same approach. And oh, man. he was just so kind. And it was all about Romans two: the kindness of God leads to repentance. And it's it's gazing on this Christ is what leads you from glory to glory into the image of Christ. And mm. you just begin to see that um, God is love, <laughs> and and there, and and then. With the orthodox guys then they would come along and they would confirm this theologically after the fact, and this is what you do. You're yeah. so they would say this theologically, there is no retribution in God, and we'd say, None, what do you mean? <laughs> Not even a little, <laughs> and and then we'd we but then we'd look at our history with these broken people and we go, No, he never once. Came to us in retribution. In fact, I wish he had sometimes. Mm. Right, right. I know of cases of gang rape where it's like, go. If if God is wrathy, he should wrath them,
2: mm. and he's
3: not wrathing them. So, what does this mean, right? Wow. So then someone will bring out their Bible again, and I, I'm like, don't don't poke at particular stories in the Bible. Look at the big picture. Where does it go? It goes to the crucified one drawing up all of that suffering, pain, and perpetration into his own body on the cross, and then swallowing in love and recycling it as forgiveness. So, yeah, all of that time with broken people, with disabled people, with with 12-step people, and all of that, it, it does a number on your theology, hopefully, I think, a good number, that that then becomes a lens with which you read scripture.
1: So it sounds like you didn't go looking mm. for... Uh, you didn't go looking to deconstruct the God of wrath by working with the least of these, but in working with the least of these, a lot of your assumptions about retribution and wrath as a solution to what's wrong with the world were deconstructed almost against your presuppositions and will as these people encountered the risen Christ in prayer. Yeah,
3: especially against my 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 fleshy um, uh, desires. Like, so, yeah, I... I didn't want him to be kind. <laughs> yes. I wanted him to pour out his wrath. I'm yeah. like, I mm. have a list of people for you. I want you to be the hitman. I want you to be my hitman. You know that kind of thing. And so, yeah, you're you're right. It was. It's not like I'm this peacenick <laughs> who's looking for a peaceful God. Yeah. It was I, I was a violent sob
2: mm.
3: being converted, like Paul was. You know, yeah. Paul, Paul was converted from. Um, um, his personal participation in violence, and the the assumption that his violence was an act of faithfulness. Yes. <laughs> and so I think people, even even this murderous Pharisee, was de- driven deeply by a by, by by a desire for faithfulness. I think I think a lot of people are, but but then you can see then how their own projections mm-hmm. about how they want the world to be. I want to control this world, so I'm going to project onto God, this God of control, and to be faithful is to be an agent of his control. And, and you're like, oh, my goodness. So it's such a pseudo-faithfulness in that sense. Hmm. But it is a desire for faithfulness, and, and, and it's one that um, God is willing to transform it. In my case, it was it was like a long, painful Mm. Transition to where now I'm 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 deeply committed to that, and I still need to me because I feel the violence in my heart.
1: Yeah, we've talked about this before on the podcast, but I'll just point out you mentioned Paul and Damascus. I mean, this is Peter and Cornelius's house. Like he's going to Cornelius's house to like let's put this Gentile stuff away. <laughs> like, and you know, he's mm. not looking to relearn. Uh, you know, eight hundred years of Jewish thought about Gentiles, hmm. uh, but it happens, and so I think you're, what you're describing is—it's here's the irony—is that you didn't get to it through an inductive Bible study, right? But what you're describing is a biblical journey.
3: Yeah, and then what I'm what I experienced then was not a deconstruction of the Bible. See, this is the problem. People think, but but I'm faithful to the Bible. I believe in the Bible. No, you believe in your hermeneutic. That is your interpretive your interpretive um, um, framework. And so yeah. the, here's the idea. People will think then if you, okay, you've got a conflict between the Christ-like God and the inspiration of scripture. And I'm like, and that you're going to have to throw one or the other under right. the bus. I'm like, not true at all. Yes. The more Christ-like God is deconstructing a, a fragile hermeneutic. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, would say a toxic interpretive yes. system that was birthed with modernism, which was birthed with the Reformation. (laughs) So um, so then if people can get their heads around that, it's not quite so threatening. It's like, no, Brad's not saying get rid of your Bible or ignore your Bible. He's saying read it more carefully with a more ancient and Mm -hmm. proven interpretive grid.
2: Yes. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's that's what people. I think that kind of message is what a lot of people need to hear again and again. Is because w- when they reach these points where they see the conflict between God is love, God is like Jesus. One one of our axioms that we train uh, people in in our coaching is to embrace you know the the truth that God is like Jesus, and in Him is no unchristlikeness likeness at all. Yeah, uh, which is a quote. I think attributed to an Anglican bishop. A few Anglicans. Yeah, Archbishop of Canterbury. I forget yeah. which one. Yes. Yeah. Ramsey, heard, Michael Ramsey. Ramsey, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, but anyway, like that feels threatening again, like you said, to their hermeneutic, but they don't realize it's their hermeneutic. It feels like God. It feels like it's threatening <laughs> yeah. to their faith. Yeah. And um, the options that come up for people are, I could abandon the faith and just like live mercifully or, you know, like embrace, embrace this and assume it's not Christianity. Um, or, you know, double down on the wrathful God, double down on God is pure will. Um, yep. but I, I love this third way of saying, actually, um, there is a, a way of reading the scriptures, um, that's actually very old, very ancient. You look at the early yeah. church, they read the scriptures this way. They saw God as love. Um, and it opens up. I think it just opens up so much for people. So I'm hoping people here are hearing this.
3: Yeah. And it's not just God is love in a sentimental way, but what it is to say is that God has revealed God as love on the cross. And Mm -hmm. so, and, and that it's the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what I, you know, some of my progressive friends who are on a similar journey, their progression is just leading them away from Jesus. And I'm like, well, that's, I have a better way. If you mm. want to be faithful, double down on your Christology. Go higher, like much higher. Mm. So, <laughs> practically speaking, that means um, that means. G- well, here's a concept: Jesus is the Word of God. <laughs> okay, the, the Bible is a uh, is are, are the sacred, inspired records of our journey with God but it's not the word of God in the end at the end of the day Jesus is the word of God he's our final authority for faith and practice in spite of what most protestant um uh, doctrinal statements say yep the scriptures are our final authority for faith and practice no they're not and in fact the scriptures say they're not <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the scriptures Don't. say yeah. Yeah. that Jesus is the word of God that the Holy Spirit will lead you into all truth and that the church is the foundation of the truth. And, so you're, the, and you're like, what? Yeah. Well, the ch- church one, tough one, but yeah. <laughs>
2: yeah.
3: And so, so what are we saying here about the Bible? Well, the, the Bible emerges like our theology. The Bible emerges from our encounters with the living God and, and that Jesus is that living God. I like what Brian Zond says about it. Have you been, had him on yet?
2: Yeah, he's been on a couple oh,
3: times a couple already. Yeah, right? that yeah. when the Bible says that, like that Jesus is the Word of God. Think of it this way: Jesus is what God has to say about Himself. Yes. And then what Archbishop Lazar, my mentor, says is is that and that every Scripture that claims to reveal God must bow to the living God when He came in the flesh. Hmm. Every Scripture that claims to be a revelation of God must bow to the living God when he came in the flesh. So it's not, I feel good, so I like this scripture. And it's like, no, Jesus is the, the is the new lens. Yes. And sure, I'll have tainted Jesus lenses, but whatever. We've got to do what the best we can.
1: What you're describing is a mm. deep intuition of people across denominational lines, Brad. So what we interface with pastors and leaders all over the world, mostly North America, mm-hmm. and we hear people, Methodists, Baptists, Anglicans, uh, Presbyterians, uh, we don't interface a lot of Eastern Orthodox. Uh, it's to our detriment. But there's <laughs> there's lots of people who are who intuit what you're saying, but they don't feel permission, yeah, to do it because their their frames and constructs are built in this the thing you keep referencing, like yeah. this other old thing. So they keep trying to squeeze new wine into old wineskins, Yeah, and, and it keeps bursting for them. Yeah,
3: I feel like. F- f- they're, for some people, they're going to have a progressive impulse, and others will have a conservative impulse, but if you have a conservative impulse, get more conservative. In other words, move. Don't go from old to ancient. Mm. Mm. So, the, the Reformation's old, but it's only modernist old. It's mm. only 500 years old, and it has some good gifts that I keep with me in my bag, as I've moved on from there, but but uh, so for some want to throw that away and come up with something novel and fresh. Some want to go ancient and find something deeply rooted. And I'm saying those are quite the same, actually. <laughs> so some of people's instincts, they're like, I kind of feel guilty for these intuitions. Yeah. And I'm wanting to say, no, no, you're tracking with the ancient church now. Yes. It's really cool. You have permission I'll I'll give you a really obvious example um, that I quote in A More Christ Like God, where there's this intuition that we shouldn't be taking wrath, anger, and violence from God as if they're in a literal way. Mm -hmm. That God isn't literally wrathful. That God isn't literally angry. That God doesn't literally do violence to anyone. That's an intuition, I think, that rises up from healthy spirituality. Well, I want to say that's exactly what the ancient church taught. So St. John Cassian, who really had a lot of impact on, on the Church of England, Anglicans, yep. um, he didn't get to the UK, but Celtic Christianity is founded in his theology. And he said this, hmm. that, to, to, that to say that God is literally angry, wrathful, or violent is, is, uh, is idolatry, and it's a monstrous blasphemy. Okay this is from the 300s. Wow. This is by you know and over and over these guys they they talk like this. In fact Cassian also says this. If when someone is talking about God as if he's angry, wrathful and violent that that's a projection of their own their own fears. Hmm. And there that's the lens they've put on. And maybe it's you know that's not saying at all but you, I, I'm just saying that in some of these mo- these postmodern intuitions are also are also premodern. Yeah, and uh, that yeah. gives me permission.
2: Yeah, it's really helpful, and I I find the same thing for myself. It gives me uh, both permission, but then also like theological resources to know this yes. isn't this isn't a new. It, 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 the permission is there because it's not a new thing. Like the church yep. has always had these intuitions, and and has said we need to learn how to read our Bible. You know. Uh, through the lens of Jesus Christ as the Word of God, the final revelation of, you know, what God has to say uh, as yeah. the Word. and um, But then also, like, a way of doing it, you know? Yeah. Like, uh, and, you know, some of them are, to our modern uh, sensibilities, uh, some of those strategies, like, don't make sense to us. Uh, but that's part right. of why I appreciate, like, for example, the work of Greg Boyd in yeah. Crucifixion of the Warrior God, where he's trying to... He's trying to give us another lens to say, here's here's a way of reading these stories as inspired, um, without making the assumption that God is literally doing violence to someone. Right? That's kind of that's yeah, kind of that's the, it. That's the perception. That's there. It. Yeah.
3: Um. David Bentley Hart has this New Testament translation out now. He's an Eastern Orthodox philosopher, and I uh, I really enjoy it because it's so weird and it slows me down and it makes <laughs> me think about the text. And one of the things he says even about like Paul is, he'll, he'll read these ancient stories allegorically. Well, we're, we're, modernists hate that, but Hart goes further, and he says he believes that, that, that Paul even probably believes they were composed allegorically hmm. instead of literal history half the time. Hmm. So in the ancient church, um, 200 AD, you've got Origen, who was the greatest and most prolific church father of his time. Um, in 200, he's saying things like, well, the first reading has to be literal, the second moral, and the third spiritual. So he's doing layers of readings. But on the literal reading, he says, um, so to read the Bible literally means, first of all, you have to distinguish which, which books are fiction and which are nonfiction. <laughs> and so he's even saying, Reading literally means identifying the fictional aspects.
2: Right, right. Not That's just taking
3: them at face value as this, right. these things you could have video recorded. It's like sure. Uh, so yeah. we we need to learn from people like that. And you can anybody now can go online and read uh, Origins Philokalia
2: hmm.
3: and it means collection and it's it's how they did. Bible interpretation in 200 AD before the New Testament was even done. And of course, yeah.
1: for origin, you read literally first because it's the least helpful lens to use. <laughs> right? Yeah. And then you get to the more you get like that. You got to get that out of the way. You got to do it. But then you move on to the better readings. Yeah. <laughs> like, yep. his- yeah
3: and by morally doesn't mean moralistic. What he means is that, you know, in the pastoral epistles, it says when you pick up the Bible, there's a point to picking it up and it's to becoming more Christ-like. Yeah. That's the moral reading. If you can't figure out how a story will help you be, become more Christ-like, then then don't preach it because you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yes. And then, and then the spiritual reading, which is like often what is seen as his allegory, the spiritual reading isn't just allegory. Um, this what it means is: how does this text point to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Yes. And if you can't figure that out. You can't preach from it, mm. and, and so he's very insistent. If you, if you're not preaching through the lens of Jesus as the final authority, then the whole Bible is the Old Testament.
2: Yeah.
1: So I'm curious what you learned. You you just use the word gospel. I'm curious what you yep. learned on the ground with uh, rape, like rape survivors, rape perpetrators. Yep. Um, they, uh, the, I'm guessing, the gospel you preach to them isn't um, uh, God created you. Adam and Eve screwed it up. Now God hates your sin, but if you pray this prayer with me, then you can spend an eternity with God in heaven. If you don't pray a prayer with me, then Jesus won't be able to stop God from uh, giving you what you deserve. Uh, so what What is then, Brad, this kingdom—like, what is the gospel, and how, how does it live, like, right—like, a ground level? Not, not at a theologically— Really pristine level, but like on the ground, looking up in a tree, inviting somebody to lunch, like what is that gospel? And how do we know if we're preaching the gospel or not?
3: Mm. Oh, that's such a great question. It even clarifies for me what we were doing back in the day when we first discovered, you know, the inner healing ministry. And I would say, you know, way we were discovering the gospel is your, you know, mm. what you're, what you're asking about. And that is, you start with the person's, um, experience of the human condition deep pain brokenness alienation isolation trauma all of that stuff because when in luke 4 when jesus launches his ministry he says the spirit of the sovereign lord's upon me to preach good news to the poor recovery of sight to the blind cleansing to the leper so he's starting with their need Mm. so someone would come to our office and they you know drag a friend in who'd been molested and um And they would tell me where, and so we would start there, the gospel to them that turned out to be, um, as I would call them, uh, I would invite them into an encounter with Jesus. And technically, that's repentance. Repent means not self-loathing or anything like that. Um, It's turning to the kindness of God to meet your deepest needs and heal your deepest wounds that's what repent means turning to the kindness of god so they come in and they've had this trauma and we're like well um i think what would help you is if we is if we would bring this to jesus for healing to turn to him with your deepest needs and 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 wounds and and if they said okay i'm willing to do that they've already done the repenting then we would invite him into the very uh, we'd say okay Let's go to the very roots of this, the very roots of your life, your pain, your history, and let's meet him there. And they would, and it, it's sort of an inter- internal narrative therapy where he comes into, he comes into our hearts. Well, he doesn't really, what would often happen, this blew my, that screwed up my theology. I thought you have to become a Christian so you can get him in your heart. But we were working with people who weren't Christians and they would go to their heart and he was waiting there. Mm. He's already there. And even like Augustine would say this back in the day, he said, Well, you know, when I went running out into the world, God didn't leave me, I left me. Yeah. So I'm coming back to my own heart. And what do you know? He was there the whole time. Mm. And then and then and then they would behold the Lord. I mean, they would they would begin to see how he was. He was there for them because the idea with them wasn't that, oh, God is wrathful. It was that God was absent, that he's an absentee landlord or the the father who just sat by watching them be abused. But then they would see him enter, co-suffer their pain with them. Okay, Mm -hmm. so now we've got this is the cross. This is that he has co-suffered the human condition even unto death.
1: So what you're saying then is the cross isn't the gospel there isn't. Jesus suffered the punishment you deserved, but rather Jesus suffered with you the punishment you endured.
3: Yes, yes. Uh, well, let's say for the victims, but let um, let's say for the perpetrator. Yeah, I'll give you an example of that. One of the perpetrators, I bring him to the. He came and he told me what he had done, and I was horrified and I was angry at him. But I so in prayer, I dragged him to the cross, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like. I said, "Can you see? Can you see the Lord there?" And he said, "Yeah, I see him. Usually he's standing alive in front of the cross, but here he's on the cross." And um, I said, "Tell him what you did." So he confesses everything he did to Jesus, and then and then I said, "What does he say to you?" And I'm like re- ready for the the ham- hammer down. <laughs> and Jesus says to the guy, I, "I forgive you." So he's he endured what we've endured, and he's also endured all that which we per- perpetrated. Mm-hmm. And in that moment, he says to the guy, I forgive you. And the guy says, um, that was too easy.
2: <laughs>
3: and Jesus looks at him and says, no, it wasn't. And he's like, oh, and then the tears. <laughs> oh, <came>. my
1: gosh. <laughs> <Brad>. <laughs> so
3: That's so the, the, the meaning of the cross, one of the meanings of the cross is, yeah, I like how you worded it. It's that he's endured all we've endured and he's endured all we've perpetrated. And and, and and he's able to do this for for all history for all people and in fact has but then the question is but what about my pain is like he even enters your pain and he and and through co-suffering love he heals it
1: oh it's such a beautiful gospel and i think
3: i think it is a, it is a gorgeous gospel
1: and there's there's this sense that you know people who've suffered abuse or perpetrated like abuse like things you can go to prison for or things that you know you would commit suicide yep. about like just really hard stuff that isn't that isn't of a different cloth of suffering and pain and brokenness than the rest of humanity suffers right it's on it's in the same. Spectrum of like mm. just brokenness and hurt. So what's mm-hmm. beautiful about that gospel is, it is it's not just for the it's not just for the completely distraught and broken, but it's for the middle management white collar suburban dad of two who who's doesn't hasn't been in touch with his heart for years and mm. is simply going through the motions in his marriage yes. right and but he's got Netflix at night and a six pack on the weekends and so he's going to be okay. You know what I mean? Okay,
3: now you're just describing my life. But. <laughs>
1: Hey, let's, let's Jesus go, can hear um, you let's, let's go to the cross, Brad. <laughs> you and me, let's yeah, yeah, yeah. go to the cross. What's Jesus saying yeah. to you? <laughs> as, as, uh,
3: my wife and I were making the bed this morning, and uh, she, I want to point out something. Um, when when you were, we just did a three-week tour of New Zealand, and she said all of the examples you gave were about sexual sin or sexual assault or sexual... And, I, I, you know, you want to be more relatable than that, and I, I agree. <laughs> um and then I was thinking why do I do that well first of all it was the front end of my experience right um, but also I want to say that if Jesus can do that for the sex addict he can do it for the Netflix addict yeah if he can do if he can heal the the, the victim of gang rape then maybe he can also touch lonely people. Right mm-hmm. so I'm not wanting to say this is only for the extremes I'm saying that the extreme is evidence that there's nothing his yes. blood can't wash. Yes. There's nothing his kindness can't touch and mm-hmm. and and I really feel like yeah you're you're right maybe like most of the people in our pews pastors need to think about this that a lot of the you've got people who just get through the week so they can hit the weekend and have that catch one little breath what they're not going to need is like moralizing But what they could use is an (laughs) invitation to just look in Jesus' face and remember how loved they are.
1: Yes. Mm.
2: Yeah, yeah. So part of that gospel is, um, and I know this is part of of this more beautiful gospel and a more Christ-like God, is this sense that the atonement is about our healing, not just sort of our guilt. It's not like a theoretical— sort of atoning of like, okay, well, now you're not going to get punished for that thing you did. It's actually, it's actually, no, there's something, you know, we're punished, this is another Brian Zahn thing, we're punished by our sins yeah. more than we are punished for our sins. And so the gospel comes to us uh, to heal us of what we've yeah. endured because of our
1: sins. That's actually a more ancient atonement theory. That's a medicinal or ontological. Yes. Absolutely. That's what the church fathers talk about.
3: Yep. That's totally true. Uh, Here's a problem in English. That is that the word of atonement as an English word has shifted. (laughs) It's come to virtually mean appeasement. And N.T. Wright says that if your idea of the cross is it's wrath appeasement of an angry deity, you've paganized the gospel. Mm. But inherent in atonement is a bit of that appeasement thing. But originally, the word meant nothing but reconciliation. So the reconciliation can be, let's say, I'm reconciled to God. He didn't need to be reconciled. I did. I was hiding like Adam and Eve. Yes. And now I'm reconci- I am come back like the prodigal son. I come back to the father's house. I'm reconciled to his house. I'm reconciled to my accusing conscience. Because hmm. what sin doesn't punish, your conscience will. Amen. Yes. You know? Yes. And uh, I'm reconciled to myself then. I'm reconciled to the, the part of my heart that's been locked away. And I, it's allowed to have feelings again, I'm reconciled to my family, my community. That was atonement, yes. but it became this weird propitiation of you know, throw the virgin in the volcano thing that has nothing to yes. do with the New Testament. yes
2: well, amen. This has been great, Brad It's been so good to have you. yes, thank you for sharing with us uh, some of your journey um, what would you what would you say just as a final word um you know, if, if some of our listeners are, are hearing this and maybe they're feeling that intuitive tug towards a merciful uh, God who is love, and, and we see that love in Jesus on the cross, but they still have, you know, some of these concerns, these worries about, you know, am I really being faithful? Can I really do this? What are the implications? Like, do you have a word of encouragement that you could just proclaim over people who are worried?
3: No, it's pretty hopeless. <laughs> 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 All right. Um, we'll see you next time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, um, because I do, I, I just think if, if we need to fix our eyes on Jesus and mm. I li- like, I actually mean it, I don't mean that as an abstraction. That was another problem with enlightenment. Evangelicalism is we would take words from scripture, like fix your eyes on Jesus Or, and we would make that like, well, stay, stay, you know, attentive to some truth you believe. No, no. It's like, no, when you close your eyes, like look at them. (laughs) And um, so then I get, you know, this is the ancient, also ancient practice of contemplative prayer, going back to King David, when he says, I, I, I set the Lord always before me mm-hmm. because he's at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Mm-hmm. And then Paul picks up on that in acts two. And he, he re, he tweaks it and he says, I saw the Lord always before me. And so you've got these invitations to fix your eyes on Jesus. Behold, I stand at the door and knock that's, and John reads, hears that. And he says, so I looked and there was a door and it's standing open. And here's, mm-hmm. yes. and he describes. So I, it's odd. It's an odd twist in our conversation because what I'm what I'm saying is um, to get past this stuff is going to involve moving beyond objective doctrinal systems to mm. try to be safe and faithful. You've got you've got to cultivate a contemplative life, and in that contemplative context you begin to encounter the living God, um, I can say that God is wrathful because I've met him. And I'm wondering about those who've moved, even progressives who've moved on from Jesus. And they're like, have you not met him? Or those who think he's wrathful, have you not met him? Because um, I'm not super spiritual, but I, any four-year-old can have a contemplative experience of the living God, and they will mm. tell you exactly what he's like. And I'm telling you, it's exactly like Jesus. Mm-hmm. So that's that's a weird encouragement, but I would, <laughs> I would pick up I on it. that and just start, and I'll give a precise, um, here's an exercise. In prayer, do what David did in Psalm 23. Ask God to give you a picture of a safe place for you. For him, it was green pastures and quiet waters. This is Ignatian stuff. Um, and then and then step into that picture in prayer, uh, whatever your safe place would be. And then find God there, the same way he found the good shepherd. How does God come to you there? What does he show you? What does he say to you? And begin to engage in dialogue in your prayer.
2: Hmm. And
3: uh, for those who are like, oh, I've never heard of this before. I'm like, of course you have. I come to the garden of alone while the dew is still on the roses. <laughs> right. The voice I hear falling on my ear, the son of God discloses and he walks with me and talks with me and he tells me I am his own. And, and, and I mean, we've been singing it in the hymns for years and years. It's like, well, stop singing about it and just mm. do it for a moment. You know?
2: Yeah.
1: So, Put down um, the organ. There right? it is. Yeah. No, I, <laughs> Thanks, I, Fred.
2: Yeah. Thank you. I really love that advice. It, I mean, one of our axioms is that God is always present and at work, and yes. you know, sometimes, sometimes that can be almost a blithe, like, oh, I know, and I, I know, God's always present at work, but what you're talking about is, no, there is a personal God who is present, who is at yeah. work, who can be observed, who can be seen, who can be... Uh, encountered,
1: yeah, but not just yeah. in your discursive intellect. And in, you have to engage your f- imagination. You have yeah. to at, engage at, your full at body. The noose,
2: the the core of you. Oh, I got to
3: tell you this one story. Yeah, it, let's hear it. it. Just happened yesterday. It's fresh. It's brief. I met. I met a. <laughs> I met with a woman who she calls herself um, the thrifty yogini <laughs> she, <Nice. laughs> she loves good thrift sale deals, but she's really into yoga and meditation. <laughs> but and uh, so I I said I. I have an idea for you. And, and um, like, she usually goes through a Buddhist meditation with a, you know, audio track. And I said, why don't you try using, you know, I said, Jesus revealed one of God's names is Abba. In fact, it was Jesus' favorite name for God. In next time you, you meditate, um, um, try that as a mantra. Hmm. Just, just say Abba to the God that Jesus revealed. Yeah. and uh she did and she got back to me and she said it was unbelievable i could is this normal i felt him in me oh my gosh oh my gosh <laughs> and, <laughs> yep and i'm like and then i could just go off on john the gospel of john it's like yeah, he's yeah. in you and you're in him and you were in touch with abba the abba jesus revealed She said it was awesome
2: that's amazing
3: I oh. Felt
1: such peace and i'm like well
3: that blows my theology away too. Right. right All right, right. right. So
1: people put away your bridge illustrations, your chick tracks and your four spiritual laws and just tell people to mystically encounter the risen Jesus during their Buddhist yoga meditation.
2: There yes. it is. That's the new that's the new model. Yes.
3: I'm sure we'll be in trouble
2: now. Probably. Not? Probably yes. we'll get emails.
3: She loves Jesus now by the way. That's fantastic. Oh, man.
2: That's beautiful. Well, uh, again, it has been awesome to have you on, Brad. I would love to do this again sometime. Um, I want to leave, leave all of us, this, this came to mind as we, were, uh, as we were talking today, and I looked it up. I want to leave all of us with this uh, blessing from Dallas Willard uh, that he would oftentimes pray over people. My prayer for each of you that you would have a rich life of joy and power, abundant in supernatural results, with a constant clear vision of never-ending life in God's world before you and the everlasting significance of your work day by day, a radiant life and death. We'll see you next time.
1: Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Gravity Leadership Podcast. If you found it helpful, please let us know by leaving a rating or review on iTunes or wherever you review podcasts. You can also email us at podcast at gravityleadership.com to ask a question, suggest a topic for future episodes, and join our online community for free at gravityleadership.com slash join. You'll get our latest content delivered straight to your inbox, as well as an email most Fridays with curated links to articles we found interesting or helpful throughout the week. To join us, go to gravityleadership.com slash join.